Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no-froth conversations exploring money and life. People are often inhibited when it comes to talking about money. I'd like to change that. I'm going to be speaking with guests from all walks of life and asking them to share their personal story and the influence money has had on some of their decisions. I will also be delving into some of those tricky money and life questions asking, what do people like me do about inheritance, tax, legacy, um, giving money to children, etc. My hope is the shared experience of our guests will get the UK talking about money and help others make better decisions. My guest today is Tim Hale, founder and managing director of Albion Strategic Consulting. Tim is a graduate of Oxford University and has an MBA from Cranfield School of Management. Tim started his work in corporate banking for Standard Chartered in Hong Kong before moving into the investment world with Chase Asset Management, who are now part of JP Morgan, where he was based in London, Hong Kong and New York. Driven by his experiences of the difficulties that he saw investors face to try to invest sensibly, he launched Albion in 2001. Fast forward nearly 20 years later, Albion has forged a niche working with over 70 of the best UK financial planning firms who collectively manage over £12 billion for their clients. Tim and his team help planning firms establish and manage systematic, risk-focused, low-cost portfolios. Tim's written a fantastic book, Smarter Investing, Simpler Decisions for Better Results, which was first published by the FT in 2006. It's now in its third edition. And in 2017, he was asked to contribute to Harry, Harry Mann's new book of investing rules, The Do's and Don'ts of the World's Best Investors. Tim lives in Exeter with his wife and two daughters and is a keen supporter of the Exeter Chiefs. Tim, welcome to Money Express Show. Thanks, Ruth. Lovely to be here. Looking I'm sure. Asking some questions. I'm looking forward to it as well. I was actually just thinking before we started recording, I think we first met in about 2007, 2008. Yeah, I think we did. I think it was just before the um, the, the global financial crisis. That was, Which we all yeah. remember well. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. Now, I definitely want to come back and talk more about your uh, career and what you've seen with money. But before we do that, just as a little bit of a warm up, maybe I could just take you back to your childhood um what was money like for you growing up well I, I was I was very lucky in in many respects because I, I never really thought about money I mean fortunately I came from a, a reasonably affluent middle-class family my father was in the diplomatic service um so whilst we never wanted for anything I mean there was never an abundance of money we didn't have flash cars or fortunately we had flash holidays because those were the places my dad got posted to so um <laughs> No, it, it, it was so I was very fortunate, but actually, I, I, I guess my first sort of realization of how lucky I was came when we moved to India. Um, and we I was there between, I guess, about the ages of 14 and 16. And I think seeing some of the crushing poverty and uh, the, the, the challenges that people face just in their daily lives was a big wake up call. And um, yeah, always it's always sat very heavily with me in a sense um, and, and has influenced how I think about money in, in many ways, I think. Well, that, that must have been incredibly powerful as, as, a, as a teenager to suddenly witness the poverty in India is on another level, isn't it? It's, it, it would just be unimaginable, really, to most teenagers, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd, we'd been living in Malaysia for a few years before that, where it was a very gentle um, and actually re relatively sort of affluent way of life. And even in the Kampong villages and things, it, it, you, you know, they're there wasn't the same crushing poverty and to go to India at 14 and 
be exposed to that in its intensity. I think Ruth, you've probably been there. So yes, yes you have. And, and, you know, it just, it's incredibly oppressive and, and it's not something you forget easily. And it, it made a big mark on me as a 14 year old. Mm. What were your first memories of money kind of within your family in terms of where money came from? Yeah, you know, I, I think it took me a long time to sort of work that one out. But I think I think also, um, you know, we there wasn't sort of vast amounts of cash f- sort of flooding around the family. We didn't have big allowances as kids. So it was pretty early on that I, you know, it was made evident to me that, uh, um, you, you know, there were that, that you had to go and earn something. And um, I think my first, you know, jobs that I did were, were for my dad. You know, I think we, we had an old house and an old drive that needed redoing. And I spent a couple of summers with a Kango hammer <laughs> and smashing that up and reconcreting it and, you know, getting the cement mixer going. So, you, you know, and, and earning whatever. He, he was a terrible payer, you know, <laughs> two pounds an hour or something, you know, well below the living wage in those days, I think. But, um, yeah, so so there was definitely a connection between hours spent throwing things in the in the cement mixer and, and what you got out of it, but it, it gave me some extra sort of pin money. Yeah, yeah. And did, did you remember ever kind of hearing your parents talk about money? Uh, was it was it a discussion at all in the family? I don't remember it particularly. Mm. Um, I remember my dad, you know, <laughs> sort of, you know, someone said, well, we can't really afford that. I, I do remember those sorts of, you know, yeah. it'd be lovely to have a nice car and, uh, you know, can we go on this or that holiday? And well, I'm not sure we can afford that, but we can yeah. do this. Um, it, but it never felt constraining. It just, it was just sort of part of the conversation. And I think it, it did make me aware that, you know, we were very lucky to be where we were, but um, that, that, you know, I think my parents were having to manage to a budget. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It must be fascinating though, moving around as, 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 a, as a youngster. Were you in sc- at school in the UK and then you'd travel to see your parents during the holidays? Um, I started off, I went to school in Malaysia um, when we were there. We, we were in Hong Kong first and then went to Malaysia and I went to school in Malaysia in, in it was the army school system, but it, so a, a British system of schooling. But when I got to the top of that, there, there was nowhere to go. So it was back to, back to the UK and back yeah. to boarding school. Yeah. And I think that was my first realization in a relative sense on the other side of, of money. One, you know, India being, gosh, we're very affluent relative to yes. some of what we're seeing. The other side was when I went to uh, school and and uh, you know we used to turn up in our beaten up old you know Morris 1800 and the Jensen interceptors and the Porsches and the Mercedes surrounded us you know so I think that was my first realization that you know there was a there was also people well above us as well as yeah you know, people less fortunate than ourselves yeah a really interesting contrast I guess and and you're right there's there's always somebody with more or less isn't it it's seemingly I guess unless you're Elon Musk or Bill Gates or something but uh, and um you I think you uh, you started your career after after Oxford uh, did you go straight to Cranfield to do uh, your MBA or did you have some no, time I, in work? I, I joined Standard Chartered um mm. in their expat program and and um got posted out to Hong Kong for four years which was which was great so I was sort of you know treated fantastically well given a beautiful apartment on the peak overlooking the the islands and yeah you know, tax-free salary, overpaid. I mean, we, we, we sometimes talk about, we wonder what we did in those days when there was no phones, no, yeah. no PCs, no, no, no spreadsheets, no nothing. I, God knows how we filled our time all day, but we did. 
<laughs> but it was it was a, it was that was a very fascinating time um, because it gave me a, I was working in, in the sort of the industrial groups in Hong Kong, particularly the textile manufacturers. So these have been the Shanghainese families who come down from China. And um, it really gave me an insight into the work ethic and the drive that money gives people in Hong Kong and the, and the Chinese in particular. I had no doubt that when China opened up at some point, which it hadn't had done at that time, that it was going to be incredibly powerful economically because the, 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 the desire to make money in the Chinese psyche is, is enormous. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And presumably, does that mean that in, I've never been to Hong Kong, it's definitely one of the places I'd like, I'd like to go. And it, it, it always feels like an incredibly, or I imagine it to be a very intense place to, to be. Was, was that what it was like to live and work there in those days? Or was it before it kind of exploded into the financial no, centre it is now? No, it was, Ruth. It was, it was a, I mean, very vibrant but, and incredibly dynamic. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, the, I, I loved the, the clients that, that I worked with. They were delightful people, often the second generation of the, the Shanghainese families that, that had most of them been schooled in the States or in the UK, gone to Harvard, and they come back to run these big family businesses. And, um, you know, just the intensity of it, we, you'd turn up at a garment weaving factory, a, a sort of a weaving factory as part of the, the, the garment group. And you'd be on the 20th floor of a building with looms that you could hardly walk between, hammering so much that your vision went blurred because the vibration in the building was so intense. And I actually had one client who'd built an office within, within the office on springs so that you could actually sit and think. Oh my God. So, so everything else shook around you on the 20th floor, but his office stayed, stayed stable. <laughs> so yeah, no, the, the intensity of just the streets, the people, the markets, that the businesses, that the, the pace of business, mm. pace of finance was was an amazing introduction to 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 to, to capitalism for me. I bet. And so that was within a corporate banking sector. Yeah. Could I ask you to maybe take us through kind of why you move from corporate banking into investment, your experiences with investment management, and I guess then what what caused you to. Uh, set up album and, and 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 live life differently. Yeah, Hong Kong was an amazing place, and and uh, you know being in Standard Chartered in in Asia was was a fantastic opportunity that that you know most people give their right arms for. But the, just the, the corporate banking job itself, I, I love the relationship side, but but the 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 general banking stuff just bored me. Mm. Lending money to firms, setting up credit lines, setting up FX lines, it just. I don't. I couldn't see much in it, and and the 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 up the the, the downsides. You know, like a, a firm that you'd lent to going bust was was always hanging over you. And the upside was you got your money back, and nobody congratulated it, congratulated <laughs> you for it. I thought there's there's got to be more to it than that. So um, I, I sort of began to get a bit restless from a business perspective, and thought, right, I, I got to do something. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And quite a few of my friends were fund managers in Hong Kong, mm. so I. I just got a general feel for what they were doing. It sounded interesting going around, poking around, looking at, you know, companies and analyzing them, building them into a fund. Um, and when I went to business school, because I, I thought, well, I, I don't really know what I want to do. So I'll, I'll invest in myself, you know, go and do an MBA and then um, give myself some time to think about what I wanted to do, mm. uh, which I did. And on, on the course, we could do a strategy project. And one of the guys on the course worked for Fidelity. Mm -hmm. And so we did a six-month strategy project, uh, a small handful of us with Fidelity about their strategy 
in, in the UK and Europe, and they'd literally just arrived. And we did a little bit of market research, and most people thought Fidelity were hi-fi manufacturers. Yes. <laughs> so you can see how far they've come since those days. But it was, it was a fascinating project, and I came out of Cranfield thinking, yeah, that's what I want to do. Mm. I came out in the middle of the recession in, in 1991, I guess it would have been, uh, but sort of stuck to my guns and forced myself to keep on looking and, and eventually got a job with... Um, in fact, it was Manufacturers Hanover's Trust, one of the big American banks at the time. And the day I walked in, they announced the merger with, with Chemical Bank, which I thought wasn't a great omen. <laughs> <laughs> for last in, first out, was purely on my mind. Yeah, and so, so I, I ended up in this small um, global private client investment management unit, and it was being sort of re-engineered by uh, a bright guy who'd, who'd done a uh, an MBA at uh, at um, London Business School, and there were four or five other MBAs, and there was about ten or twelve of us in the firm altogether. So it was a very exciting, mm. great grounding in 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 putting things together. Um, so that that was sort of my initial sort of experience, and that was working nuts and bolts all the way through a lot of the analysis around. We worked on asset allocation, and and as well as on obviously on the sales side of things, and and. That, that was fun and it was dynamic and lots of really bright people around. Mm. I loved that. I loved working in the city because there were so many interesting and intelligent. And you were in London at the time. In, in, in London at the time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then um, Chemical Bank bought Chase Manhattan. Okay. So there was another big merger. So they tried to ram these two sort of rather messy businesses together on the asset management side. And um, as a consequence, I, I was a sort of a quite a product spread sort of generalist in those days. And, and so uh, I was sort of supporting the sales team, but with sort of product knowledge and things, and then got parachuted into Hong Kong for another year mm. um, when the head of Asian um, sales left. And I, I did that job for, for a year and then moved on to, to New York where I worked in the strategy group for the firm, but also with a sort of a product support role for, for, for the sales teams. And um, that, that, that was a fascinating time too. I mean, mm. You know, a big business trying to become number one in all its, um, you know, key key markets. Yeah. Um, but the asset management business was struggling. Just we didn't have critical mass. We we had sort of very US oriented product and yeah. things. So, um, but actually, the, the 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 genesis of my thinking had changed. I I, I beca- began to very early on question the randomness of outcomes mm. that we would get from portfolios. It's like, well, why are we up this year? Why are we down? And uh, it, I became more and more cynical about it. And um, it, it takes me back, and, and this leads on to, to why I guess I ended up at Albion, was um, I was asked to put together very early on the performance track record of the firm and um, this great track record I've been sold in my interview. And then I, could, I couldn't find it anywhere. We, and this was the days of, you know, PCs were pretty early on the desk. But yeah. To show you how long ago that was. <laughs> and um, I... I, I couldn't find it anywhere, and, and eventually the head of equity said, "Look, just it's in the in this firm's file in in the in the big report from one of the consulting firms." So I went and got it, and I was looking at this chart, and it had our performance, and then the market, and our performance, and then the market. And one of the cynical fund managers came over, and he said, "The only way you're going to find out performance there, Tim," and he just turned the page, the book upside down, and said, "There, there you go. There's your outperformance." My goodness. <laughs> And I sort of began to wonder about it. And then one of my, my senior managers um, sent me um, Charles Ellis winning the losers game. Mm-hmm. And that was a real 
complete Damascene moment around the soul stuff. Yeah. Uh, that there was some, that we were, we were doing everything sort of in the wrong direction. And I, I just became more and more cynical. And everyone used to know, they used to call me Mr. Passive because I was so <laughs> interested in it. Yet, unfortunately, you know, that all the products that we were and the work we were doing was around the active space, you know, trying mm. to beat the market as opposed mm. to trying to just capture market returns. Mm. So I, I got to a point where I think emotionally and, I, I, and I, mentally I couldn't work any longer in, in being so cynical about what we were doing. And mm. there was a big reorganization and it gave me the opportunity to step out and just say, right, I'm going to do something on my own. And that was when I set up Albion uh, in sort of just about 2001, something like that. So I, I'm thinking that within Chase at that time, you were you were quite a contrarian to in, to in terms of what you saw going on around you. Would that be would that be correct? Yeah, I think I mean everyone used to sort of laugh that that I was the sort of the, the passive guy, even yeah. though we didn't have any passive product. And but I the, the reality the reality was that so were most of my colleagues. Mm. They'd got it too, but there's a tyranny of function. Um, you know, you get paid big bucks to, to try and beat the market. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going to believe in it. And I think that there is a cognitive dissonance that, that exists in the active management world, which is yeah. you've got to believe it. Otherwise, you couldn't get out of bed in the morning and turn up to work. Um, and for you, you couldn't hoodwink yourself into that way of thinking. No. And I think I think it was a combination of things, Ruth. I mean, one was I couldn't sort of you know I, I couldn't reconcile it in my own mind mm. um, and I felt it wasn't really where, where I wanted to be and and I think that the other thing was you know when when you're younger in an organization they're, they're quite aggressive and you know that there's lots of opportunity lots of very bright people and as you get a little bit more senior it begins to narrow very quickly yeah and everybody you know the politics ramps up exponentially yeah and I just thought I'm not sure this big company things for me any longer so yeah. it was it was a sort of that was a combination of the combination of those two and, the, yeah. and going out but I, I i i had no real idea what i was going to do um oh. uh, i mean i it, i knew it was something around maybe around the education of investing space mm-hmm. um maybe it was something around that it was going to be centered around the sort of the passive side rather than the active side which was certainly revolutionary when i came over here mm. I remember very early on I was invited to speak at the PFS conference mm-hmm. and it was sort of the very, very early days of sort of even the, the start of the active passive debate. Yeah. And um, I remember going up on stage and looking out into the audience and just seeing the looks on these people's faces like, where's this guy from, from Mars? You know, has he got three mm. heads? It was just sort of, I was this alien creature talking about something that was just complete nonsense to them. Um, well, and, I, and I, I can totally imagine why that would have been the case, because in kind of, so we're talking 2000, 2001 kind of time with that. Probably being... a little bit later by then, probably about two, 2003, 2004. But yeah. so, so, you know, Dimensional were just arriving. Yeah. Um, you know, there was probably the Virgin Tracker was probably mm. yes. thing and, and an Aviva International Equity Fund. I think was. The very expensive Virgin Tracker. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I will, I mean, I think it it would have been, um, I can't remember if I did hear you speak at that PFS, that's a personal finance society um, conference, but I, I probably wouldn't also have been listening at that point because I think we'd all been sold this other story that it is about picking the winners. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's, 
It's fascinating. So you, you'd set up a consultancy. So this was the genesis of Albion at that point, was it? That yeah. So I, and, um, you know, my, I, because I'd been working in New York for a few years, all my contacts were on the East Coast of the States. And yeah. so my, the first jobs I did were working with some family offices and private banks. Um, some of that was around the investment space. Some of that was around investment education. Mm. Um, and then I, I think, well, then I got married and kids came along and it was sort of became much more difficult to be hopping over to, to the States every couple of weeks. Yes. To work. <laughs> but, um, so I, I, it, it just seemed, seemed to make sense to, to reorientate the business around the UK marketplace. Plus, I, I guess, you know, initially I had lots of contacts over in the US, but I, as the years went on, I, I didn't have that regular yeah. contact with people. So I needed to sort of refocus the business. And so I knew I wanted to do something around the passive space. And I, I was sort of writing the book um, and I was a bit lost to start off with because I couldn't, I didn't understand all the, the way that the, the, um, the advice business worked in the UK. It seemed anathema to me to charge commission and come mm. up and, you know, I just, mm. it just seemed so weird. And, and the, the products, because I came out of a US background with profits funds and all that stuff. And I, I just couldn't work it out at all. It was just, it's, I just seemed crazy. Um, and then I stumbled across the, the IFP mm. and that mm. was really as a consequence. So, so those first few years we were doing general consulting stuff and, and I did projects in the UK with some firms, but it was really um, Sam Adams who was at Dimensional um, had, had read the book and um, he invited me to come and talk at a, at a, at a um, you know, a, a meeting that they mm. were having, one of their study group meetings, mm. and I talked. I can't remember. I think I talked about uh, sequence risk, which was mm. long before anybody else seemed to be talking much about sequence risk. Yes. And uh, I don't know if I ever made you do the twenty, the twenty-sided dice game. Did no, I don't think you did. That? No, you were lucky. You missed that one. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so out of that, um, quite a few of the people there were, were obviously IFP members, and. Yeah. Um, suddenly I think I sort of found the niche of the type of person that I wanted to work with mm. um, as a firm, uh, people who put their clients first. I mean, this was long before, you know, fees uh, over commissions came in with RDR, yeah. um, but they were all fee-based. Fee they were all financial planning firms like the Red House had been when yes. I met you guys um, who wanted to do the best for their clients and had already thought, gosh, there must be a better way than trying to pick these, you know, who's going to be the next star manager and, and then having all the disappointments that come with mm. that strategy. So um, I found this little niche of like-minded thinkers and, and I thought, gosh, you know, I, I, I think I can help them here to, to, to build better portfolios and to you know, take that away from them so that they can spend all of their time focusing around their clients or much of their time focusing around clients. And that, that was really the genesis of... And I, I distinctly remember the first time I heard you speak, which would have been at one of the dimensional workshops that you referred to. And I think Gareth and I, um, Gareth, my uh, late business partner, joined you in the lunch queue and I thought, well, let's try and talk to Tim. But I'm sure he won't want to deal with a small firm like ours. And, and in fact, that was exactly the type of firm that you wanted to, to work with. And, and I remember learning so much from you uh, about how markets really work and almost the fallacy um, of trying to pick fund managers. And it was, it was a real light bulb moment 
for, for me. Um, and, and obviously these days you also work with, with Paradigm Norton and, and, and help shape um, our investment strategy at, at Paradigm Norton. So you've been really integral in terms of my um, um, grounding in, in, in money and, uh, and the way markets work. But what are the um, typical investment mistakes that you, you might see other individuals or professionals making if, if mistakes is the right word I, I i think yeah mistakes are a tough word isn't it i, I think people get i think that people just get caught up in the moment is the, is the easiest way to to describe it it's um you, you know we get caught up in the moment say say in the, in in march april last year when the markets crashed because of covid hmm. you know everybody gets you know hugely emotional about it and tempted to 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 start selling out or wanting to do something mm. um and then what we're seeing now is uh, is the sort of the well, certainly at the end of last year the start of this year that the, the craziness of the upside where everyone gets caught in the moment buying tesla buying GameStop, mm. but you know this sort of the the madness of both ends of that and i think that the, the challenge is that it, it's so hard to step away from your emotions the investing yeah. bit's the easy bit actually it's the emotions that the incredibly hard bit about this game yeah. Um, and, and unfortunately, a large proportion of certainly retail and some in institutional investors do get whipsawed by the markets mm. and the strat following a strategy of buying things when they've gone up and selling them when you're fearful and they've gone down is completely opposite to what we normally want to try and do, which is to buy TVs when they're cheap and to sell other things when they're expensive. So um, it is really interesting. What one of the things I've observed over the years, as well with with clients that I've dealt with, is that particularly, well, I was fascinated that it was experienced businessmen, you know, CEOs of companies, that often are the most reactive. And I, and I think that's be, my sense, and I may be wrong, was that it's just because they're programmed for action. It feels like we should be doing something, and it feels very passive to sit on your hands and um but again it's it's that is that the overconfidence that comes through from certain personality types possibly yeah i, I think it's overconfidence i i think it's feeling that you can control risk by controlling things mm. um you, you know by by getting ready to jump out of markets to get away from the risk but i, I think i think nobody ever teaches us about how markets work. Never, ever, no one ever teaches us about us about investing. We don't learn it at school. We don't learn it at university. We don't learn it when a company puts us into their defined contribution pension plan. Yeah. So nobody has any understanding of it. And and a few people read, you know, the Sunday Times and the share share tips columns. I, I and and fund pumps. I, I it, we just don't have enough grounding in it. And yeah. I think therefore we think that because we're bright and because we're smart and because we're successful that we can somehow control the risks mm. in the market and the reality is that you know the, the city is full the fund management industry is full of unbelievably bright hard-working talented ambitious people but you know as i say you know that the old saying that you know you can't all be better than average drivers yeah you know, it's as i think that the realization that people have eventually that that it is a zero-sum game that somebody's wins have to be funded by somebody else's losses and there's a big raft of costs coming out of the middle of it all yeah it means that the odds get pretty rapidly stacked against you 
I think one of the things that really resonated with me was when, and it could well have been you, Tim, you just explained that the stock market is just a market, which means somebody is selling something at a price because they think that's that's good value for their sale and somebody else is buying it because they also think it's good value. So, and, and when you, you kind of, think, obviously there, there is more complication to it than that, but at, at, at one level that really helped me when, when you see headlines that, you know, billions of pounds of shares have been dumped in the UK market today, well, somebody's bought them. Yeah, somebody thought they were good. good. Yeah, yeah, so it, it, is, it is really interesting, I think, when, when one starts to kind of just question some of these things we take for granted. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, th I think it's, you know, in life, we, we expect that if, if we've got a legal problem, we, we go out and hire a great solicitor or a barrister to deal mm. with it. We, we have, you know, a, a high performance car that needs servicing. You go to somebody who you know is going to cost you more, but they'll do the job. Yeah. But that relationship, investment manager is one of the few relationships where paying more for, for professionals doesn't get you a better to a better place. Yeah. And I think that's very hard to, to get your heads around. You think, well, I've got the money to do it, so I'll go and, go and buy the best. But the best is probably the cheapest. I think that's right. And I think there's a lot of other emotion, isn't there, attached to feeling like you're spending a lot of money on a warm uh, uh, panelled drawing room meeting space or um, uh, go into a boutique fund manager or a hedge fund manager, that somehow you're getting something different than the, the, than the rest of the, the hoi polloi. And I think our experience is that it probably doesn't really work out that way. Yeah, I think that's the case. Um, I always think that what's really interesting is how somebody like you, Tim, who's obviously a professional within, within money, what kind of personal money habits or systems have you developed to look after the, the Hale family fortune? Yeah, I, I, I mean, a few. They're very simple ones, but um, I, I, th I think there are sort of two types of people when it comes to money. You know, those who, who, who you know, borrow to spend and, and those who spend what they can afford. And I, I think I'm not sure where that comes from, whether it's your grounding, whether it's your upbringing. But I, I, I do know that, that, you know, my dad was always, you know, provided advice about, you know, don't don't borrow money. Don't, you know, have lots of money on credit cards. And if yeah. you ever have a de debt, pay it off immediately. Never owe anybody anything. Yeah. You, know, you, you want your debts and you honor them quickly. Um, and, and that's always been ingrained in me. And I think, you know, I mean, there have been times in my life coming out of university, I had a nice big overdraft, most of it unarranged, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in those days, it used to give you a checkbook where you could just write checks. You know? <laughs> um, Quaint notion. Yes, yeah, exactly. But um, so, so I think that very much has driven me. I, I've never really borrowed money outside of a mortgage. Um, mm -hmm. I don't credit cards I'm going to have a MasterCard that pays off every month mm. um, I don't buy cars on on credit I you mm. know so and I think that's that's always meant that I, I and I think there's always that sense that you know it can go wrong pretty quickly this stuff yeah um, you know you, you might be ill mm. uh, you might lose your job uh, you might have you know a, a, an unfortunate breakup with somebody that doesn't financially you know put you in a good place um, 
and you've got to be got to be ready for those things because it's a, a long way back if you're laden up to your eyeballs in, in a lifestyle that yeah. you're living on by paying it off in the future and yeah. so minimizing debt um trying to pay off your mortgage if you can mm-hmm. maxing out on all the lovely tax breaks the tax man gives you um, yeah. you know using your ISA and pension contribution allowances and those of your spouse and partner you know the sensible stuff really yeah. um yeah. and I think just you know li- living living a life in, in, in a certain amount of moderation I I'm I I, I had a moment a, a, another epiphany which was one of the reasons why I sort of ended up leaving um you know Chase um was I, I had a year you know one of my last years there you know got a reasonable bonus and I thought right I'm gonna I'm, I'm I, those days I was single no kids mm. living in a beautiful apartment on, on in, in the West Village I thought I'm, I'm gonna go mad I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna go mad and uh, I I thought I'll go and buy a Porsche or something and I, yeah. I went to Porsche garage and thought why on earth do I want a car in Manhattan I mean it's just it's absolutely pointless so I thought I'll go to the sports shop and you know, I'll, I'll buy myself a really expensive set of golf clubs. I thought, well, I've already got a really good set of golf clubs. So I don't need yeah. that. Anyway, after trawling around for about four hours, I, I arrived back in my apartment with a plastic bag with a CD in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, you know, why am I killing myself? Why am mm. I being driven by and kept in this game by good salaries and, and you know, useful bonuses yeah. when actually I don't really want that much? To buy and the that stuff was, that you don't want, yeah. To buy all the stuff that I didn't really want. So I, I think... Yeah, I think I've been fortunate. I've never really been that materialistic, mm. which is helpful because you don't feel you have to have all those things. Yes, um, I think it, it does help, doesn't it? And, and it leads me on to a question that I, I like to ask people about spending choices. And my observation is that we all have certain areas of our life where we will happily spend money um, on, on an item or an experience and other areas where we're really resistant, really don't see the value in it at all. How, how does that play out for you? Are there things that you will not, not even um, take a moment to think about and the credit card's out and it's purchased or what, what, what would that yeah, be? Yeah, I, I, um, I think to me, it's, it's holidays with the family. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, I recognize I was very fortunate to have the, the upbringing overseas that I did and um, always wanted the kids and the family to have that same experience. So we've spent a lot of time in Asia and other places and my dad lives in America. So we've always, mm. you know, there's always been a big summer holiday somewhere. We've tried to travel as much as we can. We stay in yeah. nice places and I don't think twice about that. Yeah. Um, the, the thing where, where I'm most resistant to, to, it, it bizarrely and, and I hate going there and I and I try not to because we try and shop locally but is the big supermarkets and and the sense that I'm being played by the psych, psych, psychologists about how how people make purchasing decisions mm. I mean you know the vegetables are in front of you they're the low value um sort of you know goods uh, but people go in and they they spend a lot of time around the vegetables arbitraging between organic beans and non-organic beans and yeah. things and if you've noticed all the alcohol is always the furthest aisle yeah because you've lost the will to to live by the time you get round to to the to the alcohol aisle <laughs> and just buy whatever but that looks nice off the shelf and that's where the big margins are I, I remember once when the kids were really small we went into to, to one of the big supermarkets 
and there were sort of you know four milk bottles mm. and i picked up four as special offer pack and then we found the four were more expensive than the single ones because you they knew that you were going to pick up the four pack not the single pack and for me that's that's bad profits and it makes me so mad mm. but it, i i resent spending my money with them. yeah you know and and you look at it and you go relative to the holiday we've just had or just booked it's yes. nothing it's not even it's the it's the principle rather than the money yeah yeah and that feeling of being played and you're absolutely right about the vegetables are always the first thing you come across and the alcohols at the end and yeah I never thought about that just giving up the will to live by the time you get to the alcohol <laughs> just pulling it off the shelves <laughs> yes please <laughs> um a question I love to ask people is We've been talking about value of money and where you would happily spend. And I love the idea of families having lovely holidays together. And, you know, I can understand why you haven't spent so much time in Asia and the, and the Far East while you want to take your family there. But what's been the best buy uh, that's cost you less than, say, £30 over the last 12 months? What's brought you real pleasure for very little money? I know this sounds ridiculous, Ruth, but... Um... During lockdown, I don't know. I don't think we saw saw each other on Zoom at that point. But I grew a beard. Oh, I miss that. Yes, you did. <laughs> and um, I bought this absolutely lovely sandalwood beard comb. It was made out of wood. <sighs> Big combs at the top, little combs at the bottom, and it had this beautiful aesthetic feel mm. and this lovely sandalwood smell. And all I can describe my beard experience was. Um, it, it was beginning to thicken out and look quite good. Um, but it felt like, you know, on, on, a, on a sort of late spring day when morning, when you walk through the garden, you get cobwebs all over your face. <laughs> That's what it was like. So the beard, the beard comb was the thing that sort of relieved some of that. Itchiness wow. and itchiness. So not only did it have this lovely aesthetic look and smell, but um, it, it had this sort of calming, soothing. <laughs> uh, until, of course, I lost the will and shaved it off one morning. So. And, and yes, I mean, so that's obviously in a drawer somewhere now, waiting for hopefully yeah, not another it's, lockdown. It's on it's on my sort of chest of drawers in the bedroom, sort of waiting for the next, yeah, the next <laughs> beard growth. And I look at it longingly, but uh, I can't possibly go back to the beard. So you were a bit of a Hoxton hipster, albeit down in Exeter. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. I wish I'd seen that. <laughs> and uh, what's your guilty money secret, Tim? I, I'm not I'm not a big spender, but mm. I, I I love I love from the old days hi-fi equipment. So, but but now I get days sort of uh, you know I'm not a purist turntable sort of guy, but I love things like Sonos. Oh, okay. Yeah. I I've always had sort of a Bose sound system, and I, I love I love my Bose sound system. Yeah. I've got my two pairs of Bose headphones. Of course, different, you need to. Different yeah. things for sport, and this one's for. <laughs> music calmly in the office and you know um yeah no I love that stuff and and just you know Sonos is all over the house Sonos uh, the girls roll their eyes when I say I've ordered yet another Sonos beam to go below the latest tv (laughs) (laughs) so that is my guilty secret yeah Uh, uh, we've got Sonus. Uh, we're, I'm, I'm based down in Dorset at the moment. And we've got Sonus, and uh, it's quite Wi-Fi dependent, isn't it? And we can get a bit of a dodgy old Wi-Fi from time to time, but it's probably user error, Tim. If I'm entirely honest, <laughs> just blame the Wi-Fi. Um, Tim, we're coming to the end of our conversation, and um, I always really love to leave our guests with a practical piece of money advice, which I'm 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 calling Tim's 
pearl of money wisdom. What would that one or two things be that you think if you can nail that, your financial future is going to be in better shape? Um, I, I mean, I think in a general sense, my, the, the quote from Jack Bowley, this too shall pass, it is such an important thing to keep in your mind as an investor, which is saying, look, these, these great times, the, the ridiculous share, share prices of Tesla and where Bitcoin's going, this too shall pass. At some point, it'll all come back to something sensible. Mm. Or when we're in the depths of the global financial crisis or the COVID market falls, and there will be another one at some point in the future, this too shall pass. And I think if you can you know, get a handle around that and just try and use that as, as something to grasp onto at those moments, you know, that, that it's, it's always darkest just before dawn. Yes. Um, you know, when times are bad. And, and I, I think that's incredibly important because investors destroy more wealth through their emotions than they do by, by buying bad stuff. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I would say is, look, just set a sensible portfolio structure, you know, get, the, get some sensible high quality bonds, well diversified on your equity side, probably through some sort of index passive type fund and just live with it. Mm -hmm. Patience, discipline. And then when you get to the lovely point at which you're decumulating, don't spend it on things, spend it on experiences. Brilliant, love those, love those, those. So this too shall pass, sensible portfolio structure, and when you do get to the point where you're spending it, you don't need more things, just, just buy experiences and things that you're going to love doing with people that you love. Thanks, Tim. Really enjoyed talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks ever so much, Tim, and hopefully catch you soon, bid or not. Probably not at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Bye for now. Bye. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast to subscribe, rate, and give a five-star review for Money Expresso. Apparently, this helps more people to find the podcast so we can help more people think differently about their money and their life. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of the matters discussed, or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn, at Ruth Sturkey. Of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is to merely share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Thank you. <laughs>